From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a perennial story of the rosebush found at Camp Amachi, the Japanese-American internment camp on Colorado's plains. Clippings are now in the ground at Denver Botanic Gardens. We'll meet an Amache descendant who traveled 3,000 miles to lay her eyes on this very special plant. Well, it's a... <laughs> Kind of emotional for me. It's, it's a part of a living legacy of that time that I've heard a lot about. Um, my, both my parents were in different internment camps, so they both had different experiences. Soon, hopefully, you can see it bloom and someday plant the Amache Rose yourself. Then, state lawmakers introduced more than 600 bills this session. Many come with price tags. On this last day of debate, how do they make the ones that passed add up to a balanced budget? If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon, your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at CPR.org support. And thanks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Maui to Denver is 3,000 miles, and Kelly Takaya King has made the trek. She cannot wait to see some plants, roses. Well, it's a kind of emotional for me. It's, it's a part of a living legacy of that time that I've heard a lot about. Um, my, both my parents were in different internment camps, so they both had different experiences. Kelly is Japanese-American. During World War II, her father was incarcerated in Colorado at Camp Amachi. As we've reported, a rose bush there that prisoners likely tended to 80 years ago bloomed recently for the first time in decades. And clippings were planted at the Denver Botanic Gardens, where we've met. What do you think you'll feel when you see the, the rose? I don't know, it's, I'm getting really emotional just thinking about it because, you know, because both my parents have passed away. So um, just thinking that there's something that lived on that's, you know, that, that's tangible. Because I've got a lot of lessons that um, I've learned from having my parents in that situation that have shaped me, that, are, that I feel like are a legacy. But to have something, you know, that you could have and hold and watch grow is just really exciting. We stroll from the visitor's center to the steppe garden. Steppe basically meaning grasslands, similar to the plains environment of Amachi. Aloha, Kelly King. Hi, I'm oh, Mike Baum. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Mike is a horticulturist, curates the steppe program, and he has babied these Amachi rose clippings. First, they were put in little containers in a greenhouse here. Now they're in the ground for the world to see. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited. I read the articles about the Desert Rose, so it was really incredible to read about something that resilient. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. and But not I surprising because the people there were very resilient, and you know, right. the, just the stories I've heard yeah. have been pretty incredible about how, how they went through something like that and came out the other end with very little bitterness. Yeah. I have to say that's really the biggest lesson. Yeah, it's amazing to see the remnants of what's there and how nature and 
lessons from our past are integrating. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. As upsetting as it was, what happened to uh, my parents, both of my parents were in different camps as they were children when they when that happened, that they were able to move on and they don't they didn't put that on us as kids. You know, they didn't ask us to carry it with them, with us. Right. Even though they lost their freedom and they lost a lot of valuables, you know, actual items. Uh, they didn't really carry that loss forward. You know, they just moved forward and had their families and raised their families and always tried to strive for giving the next generation something better. Yeah, the level of strength and dignity that we can all yeah. learn. Mike walks Kelly down a short path. The sun is out. We've put three little plants wow. out here. Um, one here, it's springtime, so they're just starting to wake up. Wow. So here, here's another one. And then the other one is here just starting to break dormancy. So have so, these ones out here bloomed? These ones have not bloomed yet. This is their first winter in the ground. They were just planted last late spring, early summer. So they had sort of a year and a season of establishment and they're just now waking up from a long winter in our garden space. But these plants will kind of fill and move through this whole area. Wow, I like how the, the three that are there are like at different stages in their growth. Yeah. It's almost like a little family. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see, you know, really healthy young growth coming from the base of these. We're not exactly sure what type of rose it is, but one of the main possibilities is one of our native roses that usually will regenerate from the base and doesn't get a lot of woody stems. So in our climate, it's not a large, what you think of as, mm -hmm. you know, kind of these large roses. It's this sort of wild, small rose with these really beautiful pink flowers. If we're growing them right and giving them kind of the right conditions, which should be a little more pampered than it would be at Amache, we expect them to bloom this summer, maybe in June to early July. But you're saying they home. did, they actually did bloom at Amachi. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing yeah. to me. Yeah. So it, many years it was later. fascinating there, you know, and it was right around when the Amachi Preservation Society sort of makes their pilgrimage there. Um, there was a group there that was able oh, to see Oh, interesting. It. I, I do have pictures of my dad and my aunt and, you know, their respective spouses. It was after my mom passed away, but I'm making a pilgrimage to Amachi and, uh, just, I think it was so emotional for them just to be there and look right. at the buildings that were there. It was quite a few years ago. Yeah. I wonder, looking at this rose, I just have this thought, you know, did your father, as a 10-year-old, skip by it? Yeah. What would he have done if he had known that that was going to be there 80 years later? I mean, he, was, he wasn't he was so much into plant. Later on, he got into, uh, he actually, with his brothers, opened up a landscape nursery. Whoa! Um, but before that, he was, you know, he was into our yard and stuff, but he was, as a kid, I don't know, he, I think he was just playing and absorbing and having that experience. But, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, even just to know the history of it and where it's at today, even without the blooms, yeah. that's very touching way as a living museum to preserve this genetic material yeah. and preserve these stories and a sense of plant life. And I actually went to with my parents to a reunion of Amachi, but um, they had it in Las Vegas because the Nisei are huge fans of Las Vegas. So I, I went as an adult and I remember seeing pictures that were set up in a display and I went, hey, there's my Aunt Bess, and she, it was a picture of her being the prom queen that we had in our family photo album, you know, sitting on a chair that looked like a throne size-wise, but it was like made out of wood, and then she had paper streamers coming down. 
And I didn't realize that that was in camp. You know, that they Her had prom set, was in camp. Yeah, they set up, you know, the Japanese were trying to make, they always try to make every place they go better. And so they were, they were setting up schools, they were taking care of their kids, they were, you know, trying to make the best of living on dirt floors and things like that, and, which is very frustrating if you're from that heritage where everything is real super clean, right? When seeing pictures like that was an eye-opener because I grew up, you know, family photos. We didn't have the digital age, so everything was, you know, in a photo album. And growing up seeing these pictures and then seeing them at the reunion, I was like, why is that here? <laughs> ah, and then making the connection. Yeah. Well, Mike, not to put you on the spot, but are there clippings that remain for distribution? So we have some that we are going to use as backups for parts of our collection. We always have a redundancy for these living collections. But the other propagules that we've propagated and have been growing have been taken to a local wholesale nursery, Tagawa Nurseries. And the Tagawa family was actually survivors of Amache. So it's a Japanese-owned family mm-hmm. that's here in Colorado and very successful business people. And they're going to produce the rose to make it available um, so people can purchase it. And I believe the proceeds from that will go back to the Amache Preservation Society or in some way go back to help fund that site to keep it going. So the rose will be commercially available um, to the public at some point. They have it in their production greenhouses and are working on it now. And as a botanic garden, we don't really have the facility to be able to do kind of this large-scale production that could get this out to the masses. Being able to partner with people like the Tagawas is going to be a much better solution. I wonder if they'll be able to ship some to Hawaii for, you know, and have somebody there distribute them. Um, it's, it's possible. Hawaii is a very unique habitat, and I'm not sure a lot of roses go there. It's very tropical, and this is a very cold rose. Mm-hmm. So it may be something that could be grown as a container plant, but I think yeah. it or would really country. struggle. You know, we, we are, yeah, on our island, islands. we go up, it gets up to 10,000 feet yeah. elevation. So we, most of the cooler climate plants are grown up country. Thank you both for, well, letting us eavesdrop in on this moment. I know that it's a a highly personal one, so I'm grateful. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Mahalo. Kelly Takaya King of Maui, chatting with horticulturist Mike Bone about the roses found at Colorado's Camp Amachi. Clippings are now in the ground at Denver Botanic Gardens. They're also in someone's backyard in Fresno, California. Someone we featured on the show before, Amachi survivor Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker. And guess what? Her clippings just budded and bloomed in pink. What does it make you feel to look at them? To look at them? Oh, my gosh. You know, so much of this is embodied in that rose. I mean, it's a history. We've called it a witness rose. Witness to what was going on in the camp of Amachi. You know, these questions come out. Who planted them? Where did they come from? Did they come with the incarcerates from California? Or did they go to the river, the Arkansas River, which is nearby, and bring them to the camp, to their barracks, to beautify, to make life comfortable? Those are the things that were going through my mind. It's just, it's breathtaking. It's simply breathtaking. And so the story of the Amachi Rose continues to unfold, a perennial tale if ever there was one. A quick note about commercial production. 
Tagawa Gardens is in the trial stage of propagation and cultivation. The first batch of plants will be donated to people who have a family connection to Amachi. If all that goes well, they'll explore retail, but that won't happen for another year or two. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One big proposal for our big problems with water in the Southwest is to bring some in from a part of the country that has more of it. It rained like eight inches in one day. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On the latest episode of CPR's new podcast about the Colorado River, we explore the boldest idea of all, Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. Today is the last day of the legislative session, and if past ones are any indication, state lawmakers will debate late into the night. One of their challenges every year is to balance the budget, even as hundreds of bills are passed, with price tags. It can be both complicated and controversial, as we'll hear in the latest episode of Purplish, from our public affairs team, here are Megan Verlee and Benta Berkland. You may think having a popular bill at the Colorado Capitol without any opponents, with bipartisan support, would mean pretty easy sailing through the legislature. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So I've had to have some tough conversations with the members to say, you know, I think your bill is a great idea but it just doesn't have support from the caucus and we're not gonna be able to find the money for it. Not find the money because many new laws are going to cost something. And everyone in the legislature knows there is only so much money to go around. This building is about relationships. Who do you trust? Who can you like convince that they need to support you? And convince them to spend money on your bill, even though it's competing with other policies for a very limited pot of funding. A lot of jockeying around, is there money for my bill? This turns lawmakers into lobbyists in a way, pitching each other not just on the value of their ideas, but the value in dollars of those ideas. I'm lobbied more than I was previously, coming from the House where there's a much bigger majority. It's much narrower here. I mean, that's why on the floor you see people constantly roaming around to each other's desks because we're asking for support on our bills and for our funding. Call it the funding dance. It's just one of the many arts to getting a bill passed through the Colorado legislature. This session is almost over, and things are moving so fast at the Capitol, we can't really safely talk about any one policy that is still in play. So on this episode of Purplish, we will talk about something that is in the background of most policy debates. Money. State lawmakers introduced 614 bills this session, at least as of last night, and I'm really hoping they don't introduce any more right now. A lot of them, probably most of them, they come with a cost. And that could just be a couple hundred thousand dollars, or it could be tens of millions of dollars. But because the state has to end up with a balanced budget, every one of those dollars has to be accounted for. 
To understand how lawmakers make these decisions, we're going to pull back the curtain a bit here and dive into the dreaded, maybe not so dreaded, fiscal note. This little document that outlines how much a bill will actually cost if it becomes law and has so much to do with its fate. And that fiscal note not only has a major impact on whether a measure ultimately passes, but also plays a key role in how the legislation would eventually be implemented. There can be a lot of drama and twists and turns when it comes to how things are funded. And in this episode, we are going to take you behind the scenes. So we'll dive into some pretty dramatic changes that can happen to these fiscal notes and all the jockeying that also happens in these final weeks of the legislative session. The governor just recently signed the state budget for next year, and tucked into that massive document are hundreds of pages of money for all the new spending lawmakers are approving, and one pot of money that they still get to divvy up right till the final minutes. And winning the fight for that money is, I think, a legislative skill all its own. Historically, it takes lobbying, persuasion, and sometimes some creative accounting. In recent sessions, Democrats have hit on a new and controversial way of divvying up that money. It's one that might keep things running a bit more smoothly inside the building, but it is garnering plenty of criticism. Let's start this off at the beginning with the big question, how do you even figure out what something that isn't law yet might cost? It's critical for lawmakers to know how much money they might be spending. Colorado is constitutionally required to have a balanced budget. I can't even balance my household budget. I I am amazed that they hit that mark every year. It is amazing, yeah. (laughs) And it starts with some of the first people who actually see a policy When a lawmaker is in the process of dreaming it up, even before there's a real bill for it, the fiscal analysts. We're the nonpartisan staff that assess all the pieces of legislation that come through the General Assembly each year. That's Bill Zepernick. His title is Fiscal Notes Manager. He spent 10 years as a fiscal analyst, and now he oversees about a dozen analysts and then also five economists. And these are the people that decide how much a bill costs. Reading fiscal notes, which they are online kind of attached to the bill, can be really interesting because I know when I'm trying to understand what a proposal does, the language of the bill might not be so helpful. I always go first to the fiscal note. They're in plain English. They make clear what's at stake. They don't have spin because they're written by nonpartisan staff. They're really useful documents. I know. It took me a few years of reporting before I realized, wait, I should go to the fiscal note as soon as I can because, yes, I think it does give you a good sense of what a policy would do and some of the ramifications. Totally. And Zabernick said, even though the analysts are doing their own research and they do have to back up their figures, they also have to make assumptions. So, for instance, take a bill that would increase a criminal penalty. Hmm. How many more people might commit this crime? How many people could potentially be incarcerated? Another example, a bill that creates a new regulation. What does it cost to implement this regulation? Zepernick said it can be complicated. For certain bills, it could take a few weeks to put one of these pages of analysis together. We take information wherever we could get it. Our most common source that we is the state agencies that we talk to about the legislation, since they're the ones who are going to be ultimately implementing the bill. But yeah, we'll look at other states, um, academic studies, you know, other research that we'll do. 
It's funny. I remember talking to a nonpartisan staffer a long time ago, and she said that this job makes her think of that scene in the movie Titanic where they go kind of below decks and you see all the guys running the boilers down in the belly of the ship. And they're the people making everything go while all that glitzy stuff happens up above. She's like, we're those guys. We make the legislature go, but nobody really pays attention to us kind of feeding the machines. It's the lawmakers up above that get the attention, but we're pushing it all forward. Yeah, I think that's true. Hopefully it doesn't end as, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully nobody drowns at the end of the legislature. (laughs) Hopefully it's a happier ending scene, but yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good analogy. Zepernick said one of the hardest things for staff is when they have to deliver the very bad news to a lawmaker that this person's bill costs a lot of money. I think it's more of an issue when it's a surprise to them that it's <laughs> that there's a large cost on a bill. Um, and so we always try to talk to them early in the process. Throughout this whole backdrop, we have to keep in mind that these fiscal analysts can be getting a lot of pressure. It's very common <laughs> for us to kind of be caught in the middle of legislators wanting to lower the cost of their bill, stakeholders wanting to lower the cost, and state agencies who want those resources to be able to implement a bill. So we're kind of getting it from all sides. (laughs) And of course, because money is finite at the legislature, unlike Congress, a big fiscal note is a big hurdle for any bill to get over and get passed, no matter how much people like the underlying policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and Zepernick said, even though they're making these assumptions, sometimes there's just not good information for how things could look if a bill becomes law. And that leads us to what we'll be talking about for the rest of this episode, which is how lawmakers sometimes try to get around footing that bill and how their colleagues decide what to spend their money on. We've talked about how fiscal analysts play a huge policy role behind the scenes, providing this key information that lawmakers need to decide on a bill. But fiscal notes aren't drafted and set in stone, right? They can change as a bill moves through the legislature. Yeah, this is really where the heart of the process kind of begins with trying to pin down a figure. It isn't straightforward, and it's not uncommon for a measure to go through a whole bunch of fiscal notes. We were actually just talking about that on our our fiscal note slack that we have, a very exciting place. But I think someone said they had a fiscal note that got revised nine times through the process, which is pretty high. Usually it's two or three times as the bill gets amended and makes stops in different committees. I have got to be the biggest nerd because it just cracks me up the thought that somewhere out there there is a fiscal note slack channel where people are (laughs) comparing their fiscal note revisions. I know. You know, Zippernick talked about this as something that happens as a bill gets amended in committee, which makes sense. You take things out of a bill, you put things in, the costs are going to change. But nine times, a bill does not tend to go through nine committees. There must be other points where it's getting changed. Right. Well, he mentioned earlier, usually if you're supporting a bill and either you're a lawmaker or advocate, you want the cost to be lower just to have an easier chance of passing. Of course. And I have an example of how a fiscal note changed this year. You always have an example. I love it. You have an anecdote for every topic. That's right. So lawmakers just passed a bill that changes the standard for filing a workplace harassment claim. Hmm. So it updates the state's laws and it eliminates this requirement that the harassment has to be severe or pervasive. And there's other provisions in there as well. So the fiscal analyst came up with the cost estimate. The price tag for this when the bill was introduced was two and a half million dollars. 
Venta, you covered the policy side of it. I don't think we even got into the money in your story. I have to admit, I don't understand why would this cost the state money? Like, this is a policy that affects businesses, not the state. One of the big reasons was for enforcement. So if you make the law easier for people to file claims, the idea is there will be more legal cases. And each legal case costs money as it goes through the courts. Right. And this fiscal note assumes a certain percentage increase in case filings. And that's based on broadening this definition of harassment. Okay, so two and a half million dollars more kind of court work if this law goes into effect, at least in the original fiscal note. But since this is illustrating how fiscal notes can change, I assume two and a half million dollars wasn't the final price tag. Right, because supporters felt this analysis overestimated how many new cases would result from this Hmm. loosening the standard and loosening this definition of harassment. This bill wasn't uniformly supported. That wasn't necessarily just about the fiscal note, but those costs tie into the impact. And backers disagreed with this. And this real sticking point in the bill was whether it would lead to frivolous lawsuits. And that was a concern we'd heard from the business community. Okay, and so two and a half million dollars in new court costs, that might be kind of an indicator that too many companies are going to get sued and maybe potentially weaken the the sponsor's arguments. But as you said earlier, fiscal notes aren't reality. They're kind of conjecture. They're trying to tell the future of what a policy might do. And it sounds like supporters did not agree with this vision of the future of their bill. Yeah, and and I think it's worth noting that it's not unusual for people to try to change a fiscal note. Hmm. That doesn't mean the fiscal note will change, but the analysts take lots of meetings, they'll hear people out, they'll research it for themselves. People will give us other information about, hey, what about, I think in that case it was, this is what happened in California and why the numbers are different. And so we'll look at, well, how's the California law different than this law? How can we reconcile these differences and come up with a reasonable estimate? And in this case, it sounds like whatever the supporters of the bill were presenting to the fiscal analyst changed their mind. Right. It it dropped by a little more than half. That's a big deal. Yeah. And so supporters said, look, broadening how we define harassment, they thought, would eventually lead to more companies following the law, creating a better workplace culture. And Zepernick mentioned this, but supporters looked at a similar law in California. And after doing additional research, the fiscal analysts agreed that the cost should be lower. Is this a common thing that is happening in the background at the legislature? I, I have to admit, I when I see a new fiscal note or a revised fiscal note, I've been assuming those come from the committee process, but it sounds like a lot of them aren't. Amendments are a big part of it, but not the whole picture. And hmm. I did find, and this is a big dramatic shift, but I found a bill this session that went from a $20 million price tag down to $18,000. That is crazy. <laughs> that is that is that's not like cutting two and a half million in half. How do you even make that happen? <laughs> yeah. So this is a bill that has to do with the Department of Corrections. And it would regulate a certain type of restraint. This is called a four-point restraint. And that's because it's a restraint that goes on each of your limbs. So four limbs. And where would the $20 million come in? Like DOC would have to buy new equipment or train their staff? Like what? where was the cost? Yeah, that's pretty much it. According to the fiscal note, increased medical staff, more correction workers who could help with the movement of inmates, The bill stipulated that the restraints had to be made of certain materials, so there'd be a cost for that. Well, people have definitely died while being restrained in custody, so I can see why supporters of this really see this as a very important policy. But 
$20 million is a lot of money when you're down at the legislature. It's a lot of money to anybody. That kind of price tag, I would think, could doom a bill. On the record here, I think it's pretty fair to say that this bill would not pass the legislature to the tune of $20 million. Mm. Just that's too high a price tag. I talked to the sponsor, Democratic Representative Judy Amopoli. She saw this $20 million cost and she was absolutely shocked. And you know how Zepernick told us that's always a tough conversation when you have to tell the lawmaker. Oh, she like, was the one in the tough conversation. I don't know, but she could have been. You know, this may be an example of that. But this isn't the end of the story. We kept meeting with Department of Corrections, and then one of the fiscal analysts said, hey, look, they're applying for a certification, and then we'll have to do these things that are in your bill anyway. So we were like, okay, well, if you're applying for that, you're going to have to do these things anyway. You must have budget for that. And so at the end of the day, they were like, okay, we can do it. So basically, she found out that they already had money for the thing that they were saying maybe they didn't have money for? Yeah, they did change the bill, but some of the core pieces of the bill, Department of Corrections has to put into effect in a certain number of years. So this was one where Department of Corrections didn't like the introduced bill. And I think supporters of the bill felt like Department of Corrections was kind of dragging their feet about the cost. But the fiscal analyst kind of came up with this solution. So it essentially canceled out that whole $20 million fiscal note. This is so interesting because it's such an integral part of the legislative process, but not one that happens on the calendar, not one that's scheduled for a public hearing, but it's clearly shaping what actually happens by the end of a legislative session. So what we've learned here is that for a lawmaker who's running a bill, there is a cost management side to the process, working in an ongoing way with their fiscal analyst to try to get the cost of their bill in line with what their colleagues might be willing to spend on it. But that brings us to the flip side of this dynamic, which is the rest of the legislature. And with hundreds of bills to consider each session, limited dollars, how do they as a whole decide what they're going to put that money into? Let me just give a brief overview about how much money we're talking about here. So we've said the state has a balanced budget. The budget this year is close to $40 billion with a B dollars. Ooh. But a good chunk of that money is federal money that's passed through the state for programs and other money that's already obligated. So for the legislation, everything we've been talking about this session, all the bills that are introduced that are moving through the Capitol, lawmakers set aside $30 million in the budget to fund this legislation. So that's why when I said earlier, if Amabile's Department of Corrections measure had been $20 million, that wasn't going to pass when the total amount for all legislative bills is $30 million. That really puts things in perspective because $30 million sounds like a lot of money, but the way you describe it, it actually feels like a kind of small pot. And I have to bet that if you added up all the fiscal notes for all the bills out there this session, that'd be a lot more than $30 million. And what's kind of interesting is the governor proposes a budget, but then lawmakers write their own budget as kind of the starting point, and the legislature passes a budget. But in the governor's original budget request, he had proposed only $15 million for all the legislative priorities. <laughs> so lawmakers were like, no, we're going to double that figure. 
Well, that makes so much sense. The governor doesn't think the legislature needs to do anything that he hasn't thought of. The legislature has their own ideas, of course. And I have to say, Benta, we are about to get to the part of the episode that I am really excited about. Wait, so you weren't excited about the first part? No, Bill no. Zephernick? Come on. No, Bill is awesome. I loved the first part. But I like this part because I think you're actually going to answer a question that I have had for an embarrassingly long time as the person who edits legislative coverage, which I have never actually gotten my act together to figure out until now. What's that? I'm curious. I'm very curious. <laughs> well, it's how does the legislature end up with a balanced budget when you have dozens, like literally hundreds of bills flying kind of willy-nilly through the Capitol? I mean, right now in the final days, they are having committee hearings on the floor. They are working overnights and weekends. Like, I, I've never understood really how they keep track of all the money that they're approving to end up on the final day with only enough spent to match the budget, that they don't wake up the day after the legislative session and go, oh my God, we spent $100 million more than we have money for. So I think you are now going to help me understand this, and I'm really excited for it. I don't know how excited you need to be because it's pretty simple. Um, you <laughs> Somehow know, that makes me feel worse. Yeah, no. The biggest thing is they just wait. A bill with a fiscal note can get its first hearing. Uh, let's say it's dealing with transportation or education or health. You know, it can go to that appropriate committee and has a public hearing, hmm. but then it doesn't go any farther in the process. You see a whole lot of bills early in the session that have a lot of excitement and joy, and then they hit the appropriations committee and they stop. That doesn't mean they permanently stop, but this is this waiting period. And that was Senator Jeff Bridges. He's the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. And that committee's whole job is to say, yes, there is money for this bill, or no, there is not money for this bill. But they really can't do that until the budget is set. And that happens in the second half of the session. You know, the reason for that is that we just, we don't know how much we're gonna have. And not knowing how much we have changes what it is that moves forward and, and doesn't move forward. And so we just have to hold. I see my problem here. I have to admit that I have tended to ignore the Appropriations Committee because, A, they meet really early in the morning and nobody wants True. to deal with that. And B, like they don't have public testimony. It's not a moment where you learn about the policy. But what I realize I've been ignoring is that this is the crucial step where they say, yes, if this passes, we can pay for it. Or no, you really can't go forward because nobody wants to put $100 million into your idea. Well, I don't think you should feel too bad because I talked to Republican Senator Bob Gardner and I think he said he was in one of his first couple years at the legislature. He's been there for a really long time, House and now Senate. And he had this bill that was super popular, got through committee and he was so excited to pass it. And then appropriations, it was a $10 million price tag and they just thwarted his ambition there. He really had no clue that was going to get killed in that committee. <laughs> so, I do feel like I'm in better company than if, I, yeah. if freshman lawmakers have the same uh, mistakes I do. But for this year, I talked to Democratic Senator Sonia Hawkes-Lewis. She was one of the sponsors of Senate Bill Number 5. Mm. So this bill was introduced on the first day of session back in January. The main sponsors are from both parties. The goal is to recruit more wildland firefighters. Lots of support for this. But it took three months to just get through appropriations. It has a nickname called Red Rover, where you have bills that sit in a probes until we can sit down and figure out how much money do we have in the budget. So Red Rover, Red Rover, send Senate Bill 5 on over. <laughs> right. To be clear, she wasn't ever fearful that this bill would be in jeopardy of not being funded. 
So just to make sure I got this correctly, because clearly it took me a decade to figure this out or to learn how this works, for the first two and a half, three months of session, lawmakers are introducing bills, they're debating bills, maybe some of them, if they don't really have a fiscal note or a, a price tag, are going all the way through the process. But somewhere in the background this whole time, someone has this running tally going of what everything costs. And once they know how those costs match up to how much money they have to spend, then they start making decisions about what's actually going to pass. So, Bent, I have another question here. Sure. Yep. As I try to learn about this process that I really should already understand. How do they do that? I mean... Does the Appropriations Committee sort of have endless power to say, yes, you, not you? I mean, members of that committee do have a lot of power, typically the members of the Joint Budget Committee, which crafts the budget. But Democrats, they're in the majority. They have come up with a system to sort that out. This is kind of a sorting process even before lawmakers take a public vote on the budget. So this is done behind the scenes and it's called quadratic voting. That sounds extremely mathy, like something you might get in like an AP calculus test or something. It does. Yeah. Don't give me that question. And I, I do want to note that KUNC's Scott Franz first reported on this system last year. Basically, Democratic leaders send out this survey to their members and it lists all the bills that are going to cost money. Each of the lawmakers essentially votes on what they like best and how much they like it. So you have like a certain number of points you can divvy up between things. And this gives the caucus a list of priorities when it comes to deciding what they have money for, what they don't have money for. That feels uh, sketchy to me. (laughs) I mean, first off, it's only Democrats, you're saying, who get to be part of this. They're cutting out Republicans entirely from spending decisions. And if they're doing this in caucus meetings, that's not transparent. That's not happening on the floor or in a committee. True. I mean, Democrats say, hey, we did invite Republicans to participate. They didn't want to. At least that's what they said in the Senate. And there's other informal ways. But yeah, this got pushed back primarily for the reason that it's not transparent. Lawmakers are supposed to vote on bills in public. Of course, we know covering the Capitol so much happens behind the scenes and in negotiations, even before public hearings on policies. Lawmakers are lobbied heavily before and may have already decided how they're going to vote in a lot of cases. But for this quadratic voting, it kind of looks like they're making decisions secretly and keeping it very hidden because they're actually voting. So this year, Democrats agreed to make the results public Hmm. upon request. Not information about how an individual member voted, but kind of how well a policy fared on this list. So what was ranked highest and that type of thing. Um, But recently on the Senate floor, Republican Barbara Kirkmeyer, who serves on the Budget Committee, tried to amend Colorado's open records law to force Democrats to reveal more about these votes. Ooh. Your constituents have the right to know how you are voting. When you are making decisions based on that secret voting, whether it's one of you or 23 of you, when you are setting priorities in your caucus, when essentially you are killing bills, deciding what goes in the budget, what gets funded, what doesn't, when you are voting and making those types of decisions, you are in an open meeting subject to the Colorado Opens Record Act. The sunshine laws apply. How do Democrats defend this? I mean, I can see why they would want the freedom to set priorities without hurting each other's feelings and getting into big debates about it. But doing it this way and keeping it off the books, 
I think Kirkmeyer makes a really strong point that this isn't how the system worked before quadratic voting. Yeah, and I asked Senator Jeff Bridges that question. He's the appropriations chair. He said, look, this is a tool. It's an important data point, but it's distinctly different from a public vote. And so knowing where the caucus is on some of these bills really helps make those make some determinations in that competitive environment for the limited funding that we have. Um, But it is not determinative. It's not the final answer. And he also says he thinks the process is actually more fair. Really? Yeah, because it gives at least the majority of members, Democrats, some say or, or more of a say in what gets funded. I've been in the legislature for six years now, and my memory of my first couple years uh, is that the budget was largely decided by the budget committee and leadership. And there wasn't really much of a process, uh, much of a way for individual members to have their thoughts on which bill should be prioritized and which bill should maybe um, not be prioritized. And what we've tried to do this year, and, and started in years past, but really I think leaned into this year, is give every member of the legislature much more of a voice in that process and in terms of what are the bills that we're going to fund with the limited funds that we have and which bills maybe aren't going to make it. He said every member of the legislature, but you said that Republicans aren't participating in this process. I, I realize they are the minority and in the House they're a very small minority, but what are they saying about funding and, and how they approach funding questions? Well, the Senate Minority Leader Paul Lundeen said it's much more informal. Certainly, they're talking to each other and trying to figure out what people agree on and working across the aisle where they can. But unsurprisingly, his belief is that Democrats are too interested in running bills that spend all the money that's available. Kind of that $30 million for many of the 100 members of the General Assembly, 65 in the House, 35 in the Senate, that's the shiny object that they're, oh my, there's $30 million. My, my response is, yeah, but there's a $40 billion budget. Let's focus on the bigger aspects and, and stop running around trying to get a, a, a million here or five million here or 10 million there for a new program. Let's actually focus on reprioritizing the, the bigger pool of cash. So Lundin has put a lot of efforts in trying to push for more education funding. And he'd actually like to flip the whole way the legislature handles funding for the actual budget and new laws. Flip it? How so? Well, he thinks the first thing the legislature should do is pass the School Finance Act, putting as much money as possible into schools, fully funding schools. And only after that then worry about the rest of the budget, how to divide up what's left for all these bills moving through the statehouse. That sounds very noble in a way to focus on the big picture all the time. It also, I have to say, sounds pretty unrealistic. I mean, lawmakers come to the Capitol to do lots of stuff to create programs they think will help people or to tweak regulations or to to change criminal laws, all this stuff that you've talked about in this conversation. And like you said, those things all come with price tags. So, of course, this little $30 million or whatever discretionary money is going to be top of mind because, as you've been saying, like, that's how everything else gets done. Yeah. And can I just say it's weird that it's like, oh, that little $30 million. Yeah. We're like. <laughs> that says a lot about the world we live in yeah. politics coverage wise. <laughs> True. Compared to $40 billion, yes, it, it is a smaller pot of money. But. I don't have any indication that the state is about to change the order in terms of how they do budgeting. But it was a philosophical point Lundin brought up on the floor, and he wanted to have that discussion. Makes sense. (laughs) 
So to sum up, as we record this episode, just a few blocks away at the Capitol, lawmakers are engaged in this huge rush to pass the final bills, wrangle over the last policies. And yet behind it all, I'm picturing this sort of adding machine clicking away, tallying all the money being approved, making sure the dollars and cents attached to those ideas all add up and don't go over. Yep, and that all begins with the fiscal note process and that painstaking research that tries to quantify how much an idea could actually end up costing the state. As you describe that, fiscal note's a kind of a living document, something that gets argued over, updated, even worked around. And at the same time, lawmakers are trying to individually convince their colleagues to support the money they want to spend on their legislation. Each chamber of the legislature as a group has to decide what policies are worth limited funds. In recent years, with Democrats in control, the tool for that has been something called quadratic voting, sort of a secret ballot where lawmakers can rank the things they think should be prioritized for funding. Supporters of this approach argue it gives more of the legislature a say in funding decisions and in a way formalizes what used to happen informally. But this does have critics who say, look, it lets lawmakers escape transparency and accountability as they make hard choices about which policies to advance. So as the session wraps up, and we, I mean, you, Benta, and Andy, who is off at the Capitol right now, cover what finally passes, what falls by the wayside. It's important to remember, it's not always about policy. It's often about dollars. Megan Verlee and Benta Berkland with the latest Purplish. Find our podcast about politics and policy everywhere, including CPR.org. Tomorrow, Benta and her fellow public affairs reporter, Andy Kenny, join us to review the hits and misses of the General Assembly that was. That's tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. Earlier, you heard about the rose tended to at the Amachi internment camp in Colorado. Well, decades before that, a Japanese man settled in Pueblo and began documenting a changing community. CPR's Paolo Chalceda visited a new exhibit that showcases his work. Just a few blocks away from the historic Arkansas Riverwalk in Pueblo, Devin Flores is adding the finishing touches to an exhibit displaying the works of Frank Muramoto, a Japanese photographer who owned deluxe photography studios from 1915 to 1958. If you look at his photo collection, you see nature shots, you see, of course, uh, studio photography, portraits of people who came in to have their picture taken, but also candid photos of people just going out and living their lives. Muramoto photographed people from all backgrounds, and his work captured the unique perspective of Pueblo's Japanese-American community whose population was far stronger than it is now. At the community's peak, Japanese people alone made up 2% of residents. They were all very well connected with each other, and a majority of them attended the same church here in town, the Japanese Methodist Church. The Japanese-American community in Pueblo began to disperse when a flood hit the city in 1921. The damage disproportionately affected immigrant communities because they live closest to the river. 
The downward trend continued during World War II, when many Japanese Americans were sent to internment camps, like Colorado's Camp Amachi. Muramoto's photographs captured how Japanese Americans were holding on to their culture. Flora showed me one photograph of a long-gone Japanese language school. The school was operated because local Japanese community members, they were concerned about their children who had been born in America losing the language and losing their connection to the culture. It was very common at the time for them to specifically send their children back to Japan for a couple months every year just to help preserve that connection. Muramoto died in 1958, but part of his family still lives in the area. His grandson, David Muramoto, says he hopes his grandfather's life can inspire people to meet neighbors with an open mind. He was able to talk to people, everybody from Indian tribes to uh, Black Baptist groups. I think says an awful lot in terms of just accepting the diversity that our country has become. The El Pueblo History Museum's exhibit, Through the Lens, the photography of Frank Muramoto, is free and runs through the end of July. I'm Paolo Shasada, CPR News. Finally today, ballet dancers share the stage with a live band in many of the productions from Wonderbound. And the Denver Contemporary Dance Company celebrates its sparkling new space with a reprise of The Sandman. The show is a collaboration with Clay Rose, frontman of alt-country rockers The Gasoline Lollipops. The epic newfangled western is based on the characters in Rose's lyrics, and the Gas Pops are the house band. The Sandman runs through May 14th. We'll leave you with Santa Maria and the Sandman. One, two, three, four! to my collaborators, Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.